You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I want people in the party who are willing to die for the movement, even though they may not even be sure we're going to win tomorrow. They're not willing to kill. You're not willing to shoot somebody. Because there was no rally and I believe to an extent it was because of the intimidation, there's no example that really can be used for what might have happened. We don't know how or where it started. So said the grandmother of Frank Collins, a high school dropout, born to a Jewish father who had decided it would be a good idea to don the Nazi uniform. He tried going to university, was a bit of an outcast, and started getting involved with the American Nazi Party, and then thought it would be a good idea to organize his own organization when the American Nazi Party didn't make him the new leader and march against Jews and blacks in Chicago. It was a white neighborhood, a neighborhood which had reacted harshly to the civil rights movement. Indeed, in 1966, Martin Luther King had been beaten in the neighborhood. Chicago did not think it was a good idea. It was a big city with lots of protests. This was the 1970s. They put restrictions on him. But, you know, he got his rallies of maybe 300 people. Not clear if all the crowd was supporters. This was a rally being held in Marquette Park. It's a park with people in it who are, when there's a public address system, are going to come over. His American Party or, or National Socialist Party had probably 100 Midwest members. He was specifically going to incite a crowd there and march to the black neighborhoods in Chicago. When he tried to do this, he was denied. You know, they allowed him to speak, they allowed him a place and time in the park, but any instance to try to get people to organize and move beyond where his permit included, Chicago stopped him and charged him with threats of mob action. And all kinds of court cases were held. At one point, the city of Chicago puts a large insurance on him, and he's, you know, they did the court blocks that. A judge who, who had sympathized with him on First Amendment grounds found Frank Collins to be contemptible as a person. I mean, he didn't even care, even if the judge was siding him. He said, Judge, I don't care what you do. I have my own plans. Yeah, they, they lied as usual. See, Pep just uh, told me that we'd be in front of the trees, not behind him. I know, they can't even see us. I hope they can hear us. Mr. Collins? Yeah. Your loudspeaker system, if it's loud enough, they can certainly hear you. Well, they can't even see us. I was told we'd be in front of the trees, not behind us. Well, I'm sorry, this is the grim you got. And part of those plans included enlisting some of the white 
suburbs against them. See, in the Chicago neighborhood they picked, there was a big Ukrainian community. So even though it was blue collar, kind of working class and people of white skin, there were also a number of uh, Ukrainian, one of the Ukrainian organizers, Ukrainians had been oppressed by the Nazis, seeing the the, the sights of people in Nazi uniforms. <laughs> you know, he was he was one of the many who would counter protest and, and argue that they should leave the park. So he starts saying, well, it might be a good idea if they enlist some of the towns, the white suburbs surrounding Chicago in this crazy quest that he's got to march on the black neighborhood. All the towns ignored him. But one town, the suburb of Skokie, Illinois, actually responded and said, don't you dare come here. It might have been a kind of 1970s way of trolling, trying to draw out a crowd by the very negative reaction, instilling negative reaction. It brings up all kinds of issues that 2017, August 2017 people will be familiar with. Do you call out Nazis? Do you leave them be? How can you not say something as the people in Skokie did? You know, we probably look back and say, shouldn't have wrote a letter at all. Well, in Skokie, it was not just that these were progressive-minded people who didn't want Nazis marching through their town. 58% of Skokie, Illinois, was Jewish, and thousands of them, this is 1977, were only 30-some-odd years away from the events of World War II, thousands of them were survivors of Nazi concentration camps living in America. And for you, for I, or any normal-thinking people, it was stupid to hit Skokie. For Collins, it was like, this is the jackpot. We're going to get lots of attention from this. So then he focused the efforts of his organization not on Chicago anymore, but now on Skokie, Illinois. And they not only announced that they were going to make a march, but they there were reports that there were calls from his organization to Jewish residents of the town, going through the phone book, finding Jewish hunting names, and trying to stir up trouble. The town responded with a heavy cost of $35,000 in order to provide the insurance needed for their safety and for the town's cost if anything should happen at this protest. And in effect, since they could not afford it, it was denying them a permit. The Skokie authorities, the Gentile authorities there, the mayor, says that he's not going to do anything to prevent JDL counter-demonstrations, which are admittedly violent. If that doesn't show clearly... What side the law is on, where the tyranny really is, and who is that tyranny, there's nothing more I can say about it. it Collins sued, and the matter went to the Illinois Supreme Court. As could be expected, the Skokie community, thousands of Holocaust survivors, were none too pleased and planned their own counter-protest. Saul Goldstein, a Skokie Holocaust survivor and community leader, talked in the press about the effect that it would have for people nearly sent to gas chambers to see swastikas in their American town where they thought they had escaped, the psychological torture. Referring to the decision of Shank versus the United States, he equated it to Oliver Wendell's famous words, yelling fire in a movie theater. Something we'll talk about in a bit. 
said George Baum, another leader of Holocaust survivors in the neighborhood. He was one of 100 surviving children out of 15,000 who survived. Most were killed in the concentration camp he was in in the Czech Republic. His liberty, George Baum described, was as haunting as it was joyful. He was happy that he escaped, but thought about all the time those who didn't survive. Here, 30 years later, he felt like quoting Hamilton. Liberty may be endangered by the abuses of liberty, as well as the abuses of power. They founded countergroups. Run the Nazis out was the name of one group. They held signs that said, Never again Treblinka, and smash the Nazis. And yes, uh, it's been a rich tradition with anti-Nazi and anti-Klan rhetoric, for that matter, that it doesn't tend to be very polite. Words like smash and run out, like physical words, are often used. I'm reminded of back in the late 30s in Newark, New Jersey, uh, when the American Bund, a pro-Nazi German organization, was holding rallies. A group uh, with the well-funded, uh, with the help of a notorious gangster, physically ran, the, uh, physically attacked the Nazis and ran them out of town. And this historically has been a pretty common reaction to this kind of stuff. The events of Charlottesville conjure up all of these issues that we'd probably rather forget. A horrible event, a tragic death of a protester and deaths of two police that were only at the scene in their helicopter because they were monitoring the rally. In general, the idea of being fascist has always been a violence idea. Violence, though, has always been an American idea. Violence, though, is troubling, and so no one should use it or mix it up with free speech. Yet, you see things like that. You know, smash, run out of town. We're going to surround you. You know, protests and counter-protests can be like two armies arguing. It's up often for a thin line of police to prevent it. Social media now is allowing, allowing more types of speech to be heard and allowing it better to organize nationally than it's ever been. You know, it used to be that protests had to be somewhat local. Even travel was a little harder than it is now. With the blurring of issues, maybe the losing of robes and actual swastikas in all cases, a president who's using the bully pulpit to give greater attention to fringe groups, retweeting things that are coming from people who are obviously leading hate groups. There aren't precedents for everything in history. I've always been clear about that, and now time seems so crazy that it's worth repeating. Like, why even talk about history? Everything's so different. Now, there's not precedents for everything, but... There's always some context. Skokie, Illinois, 1977-78, provides some historical context. Though some of the discussions this week about it, where it's come up, have been a bit too general. People you see quickly referring to the rally in Skokie, or saying that the Skokie decision in the Supreme Court means well, you can do anything you want. Well, that's all true, except there actually wasn't a rally in Skokie. And there wasn't truly a Supreme Court decision. That's sort of. We'll get to that. Back to the story. The National Socialist Party, Frank Collins' group, took Skokie to court. And they received help from an odd place, the ACLU. 
American Nazis representing the groups who had come to power in Germany and killed Jews, showing allegiance to them, were now being defended by a liberal organization with many Jewish members, including their legal director, Ari Nair. Nair and the ACLU took Skokie to court. It wasn't out of ordinary for us to do this at all, he said in a recent interview. And Nair feels really strongly that he did the right thing. It had been our practice to defend the speech of everyone. In Mississippi, the ACLU had defended the Klan's right to speech. And it wasn't easy. It annoyed some of the members of the board. White and black members of the board in Mississippi didn't like it. But they came to the aid of the Klan's right to speak. But the reaction to Skokie was visceral. Tens of thousands of members left the organization in 1977. The Jewish Defense League, led by Rabbi Meir Khan, protested at the ACLU offices. The rabbi got in with a group that caused the ruckus, that caused protests right in their office. They even found out where Nair lived, where his apartment was, and protested the ACLU's main lawyer on his block in front of the entrance to his apartment. Here we see this defender of free speech was seeing a dark side of other speech and was forced to use an underground garage for months. He didn't care, Nair said. Defending my enemy is the only way to protect my freedom. It's dangerous to let Nazis have their say, but it's more dangerous to destroy the laws that deny anyone the power to silence Jews if Jews need to cry out. And that's what he said in a 2016 interview. One thing that the ACLU had long fought against was a concept called the heckler's veto, and that's something that you see in today's cases and certainly was in effect in Skokie, that in other words, if a town or a government entity can say, well, your rally is going to make people so indignant that they're going to get violent, so therefore you can't speak, the heckler, the person who's the strongest disruptor, will always have a veto over any speech. Hill vs. Colorado was one that expressed this. In response to protesting at abortion clinics, Colorado legislated that protesters within 100 feet of any health care facility may not approach within 8 feet of any other person without consent for the purpose of protest, education, distribution of literature, or counseling. The legal question in hand was, does Colorado law potentially violate the First and Fourteenth Amendments? In that case, the court said yes. Protecting the well-being of patients entering or exiting healthcare facilities is specifically targeted by the legislation because they are most likely to be emotionally and physically vulnerable. It's like New York versus Rock Against Racism in 1989. The court has allowed New York to require its own sound system and operators and noise controls for any Central Park concert, but not to limit groups from having a concert at all. Says Nair, not a fan of the heckler's veto arguments reducing speech. As long as it's not spontaneous, there should be, it should be possible to have a police presence if all are noticed. In the same context of what we're talking about, 
these issues were aggressively confronted with in the case in the Supreme Court in the Commissioners of Prince Anne case, where in Maryland, a hate group was having a rally and the Commissioners of Prince Anne decided to limit them, uh, deny their permit for 10 days, then extended it to 10 months. And the Supreme Court said, deciding many precedents, you, can, you cannot do that. In this case, the Illinois court sided with the town of Skokie. They refused to stay. They refused an expedited hearing on all matters. The case went to the Supreme Court. And SCOTUS, in effect, you know, really did not consider all the matters at trial in, in, in Skokie. But they did remand the case back to court. So this wasn't like a true Supreme Court case in the way that we often think of it. It was a remand back to the Illinois with instructions that they had to allow more protections for free speech. Court was slightly divided. There was a dissent in this case. Justice Reinquest, Chief Justice at the time, Berger, uh, Potter Stewart, saw no reason to grant urgency. You know, um, the court the court had held, hey, you have to grant them an appeal because their right to speech is being disrupted here. Uh, in other words, if they have to appeal this thing, it's good through the normal process. It's going to take at least a year before they can have the rally. Reinquest, Stewart, Berger saw no reason for that level of urgency. And the Illinois court, they considered the arguments. That the psychological impact the swastika would have, particularly in a community of Holocaust victims. Uh, they considered that, but they ruled that freedom of speech was greater and that the swastika was a symbol of speech and it was protected. Near's memory of the case, one that he's a proud of, is that it worked. His theory was there were, quote, Little band of Nazis, and right after they won the case and won the right to speak in, in Skokie, what do they do? Frank Collins calls the march off. They disband. The organization's in ruins. He's forgotten about. I mean, actually, he ends up being convicted of child molestation later. Really strange case because one of his neo-Nazis turns him in, perhaps in a bid for power. Frank Collin becomes a supporter of paganism, which, and, and an advocate for it in the 80s and 90s and isn't heard from much. It's interesting, these cases, because it does show you that sometimes, I mean, we, we're talking about Nazis. It could just be a person that's a little off. That, that's at least what happened in that case. The case that the Supreme Court relied on, I mean, there's many of them. Brandenburg versus Ohio, that controls here. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. It was an Ohio case involving the KKK where the Grand Wizard of the KKK in Ohio had invited a TV reporter to come see what they were doing. And then Ohio charged them with statute, uh, statutes that surrounded crime syndication and uh, conspiracy and things like that. In the Brandenburg, the court said, the mere abstract teaching of the moral propriety or even moral necessity for a resort to violence or force is not the same thing as preparing a group for violent action and stealing it to such action. Accordingly, we are here confronted with a statute which, by its own words and applies, purports to punish mere advocacy and to forbid, on a pain of criminal punishment, assembly with others merely to advocate the described type of action. Such a statute falls within the condemnation of the First and Fourteenth Amendments. Okay, that's how strongly the Supreme Court, that, that decision goes back to the 60s, feels about speech. There's, there's, there's numerous other decisions that join that case. Whitney versus California, a similar case, this time involving the Communist Party of America uh, formed in California, was charged with teaching the violent overthrow of government. And in doing that, the court held that what Oliver Holmes previously had said about clear and present danger being a situation where you could limit speech, you know, no shouting fire in a movie theater. That's from Schenck versus the United States. Uh, famous line. It was during World War I, and Schenck was trying to disrupt recruitment efforts, drafting efforts uh, for World War I. Oliver Wendell Holmes, by the way, didn't feel so great about the decision, didn't feel so great about the decision after consulting with legal scholars. And later, in the, in the Abrams versus United States case, there's this fellow who's protesting the Wilson administration's intervention in Russia in 1919. This is after World War I has been settled, but we're sending troops to Russia. And Oliver Wendell Holmes sides with a dissent in that case. Here's the argument that he makes. I want to get back to it. Uh, it's something I'll get back to. But a silly leaflet by an unknown man should not be illegal. But in this case, much later, Whitney versus California, the court uses Holmes' argument to say that the state in exercise of its police power has the power to punish those who abuse their rights of freedom of speech by utterances inimical to the public welfare, tending to incite crime, disturb the public peace, or endanger the foundations of organized government and threaten its overthrow. In other words, words with a bad tendency can be punished. But it's in Whitney versus California, where Louis Brandeis makes what many people consider one of his best dissents and one of his 
one of the best defenses of freedom of speech. And I'll read that dissent because it's a dramatic moment in the court. Those who won our independence believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties and that, in this government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end and as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. They believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth, that without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile, that with them, discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine, that the greatest menace to freedom is an inert people, and that public discussion is a political duty and that this should be a fundamental principle in American government. They recognized the risks to which all human institutions are subject, but they knew that order could not be secured merely through fear of punishment for its infraction, that it is hazardous to discourage thought, hope, imagination, that fear breeds repression, that repression breeds hate, that hate menaces stable government, that the path of safety lies in the opportunity to discuss freely supposed grievances and proposed remedies, and that the fitting remedy for evil counsels is good ones. Believing in the power of reason as applied through public discussion, they eschewed silence coerced by law, the argument of force in its worst form. Recognizing the occasional tyrannies of governing majorities, they amended the Constitution so that free speech and assembly should be guaranteed. It's in the Brandenburg case where the court cites the dissent of Brandeis and reverses Whitney versus California. That's still the controlling law today, and if in the events in Charlottesville, why would a rally even take place? That's your controlling law. Now, I don't cite this great dissent of Brandeis to necessarily just simply celebrate and to sing a song of how great the First Amendment is and how great our courts are and these heroic justices are for defending it. I do think the issue requires a lot of thought, and it's not as easy as it might seem. I mean, there's a lot of chest beating over Skokie, particularly from the ACLU, Nair, still to this day, that free speech is good. And Nair in his book, Defending my enemy, you know, just makes that point again. If I don't defend this Nazi, I will don't have the freedom to speech. On the other hand, people will make the argument that what are the Nazis doing? Well, they're using their free speech to try to end it for others at some point. They're walking through the door of democracy to shut it. But our court system feels much uh, that the greater threat is from the lack of speech. Chief Justice Roberts, in the most recent Snyder v. Phelps decision, this is the decision where the horrible Westboro Church was protesting at soldiers' funerals, you know, with, with despicable signs. And so for the father, Snyder, Having to bury his son, he also had to deal with these protesters. They kept him far away. You could see the top of the pickets from where the funeral was held. They couldn't see the signs. You know, they were at a nearby street. Here's Chief Justice Roberts. 
Speech is powerful. It can stir people to action, move them to tears of both joy and sorrow, and, as it did here, inflict great pain. On the facts before us, we cannot react to that pain by punishing the speaker. As a nation, we have chosen a different course to protect even hurtful speech on public issues to ensure that we don't stifle public debate. And one of the things uh, that I like to bring up about that case, Snyder v. Phelps, is the lone dissent of Samuel Alito. He points out in his dissent that he felt Snyder, the father of the fallen soldier, had an elementary right to bury his son in peace. Members of the church had no right to launch a verbal attack on Matthew and his family at a time of acute emotional vulnerability. Our profound national commitment to free and open debate is not a license for the vicious verbal assault that occurred in this case. In another case, uh, U.S. v. Stevens, this one involving videos that showed animals being mutilated, Alito also disagreed with the decision by Chief Justice Roberts. Roberts called it startling and dangerous, the government's argument that the value of certain categories of speech should be weighed against their societal cost when protecting free speech. Alito disagreed, saying, The First Amendment protects freedom of speech, but it most certainly does not protect violent criminal conduct, even if engaged in for expressive purposes. Videos that depict acts of animal mutilation and death present a highly unusual free speech issue because they are so closely linked with violent criminal conduct. So these are difficult issues to resolve, and I only want to bring up this one point. I think all of this First Amendment celebration is obviously such an important American right. Everything feels good because the groups we're protecting are fairly small. Small, insignificant groups. That's what Oliver Wendell Holmes says in Abrams vs. the United States, what's the problem with one guy passing out leaflets? I think the Westboro became almost a great foil, like that silly church that's going to generate 30 times as many people counter-protesting them at a soldier's funeral. Are you kidding me? They're an easy group, perhaps, to protect. The Nazis, that uh, American Nazis, that Nair talked about, how he felt good about protecting them because they would, his speech rights would never be taken away. Why is it important that there really was no rally in Skokie? Even though everyone keeps talking about Skokie as the example. That's the court case, not the town. Because there was no rally, and I believe to an extent it was because of the intimidation that Colin and the others felt, there's no example that really can be used uh, for what might have happened in the case of uh, an extreme counter-protest uh, and whether the police wouldn't have been able uh, that they could have summoned in Skokie. And with not a very willing and cooperative police department in that town, what kind of an example we would have had for history. So instead of this great free speech moment, it might have been a moment of violence propagated by Nazis walking through a town of Holocaust survivors. I don't doubt that that's a possible outcome. I also believe that in a way the heckler's veto prevailed, because I think the reason that Collins didn't pursue the march is that it probably feared for 
his own safety. That limits its use as a precedent without really identifying the context. I believe when we accept the arguments of Nair and Chief Justice Roberts and the Supreme Court of the 1960s, we do so anticipating reasonable results, that the group of fringe speakers is so small that it won't matter. What if it gets large? And to the argument of that if there's time and and it's not a spontaneous mob, there should be time for a police presence to protect, you know, the, the argument against the heckler's veto that Nair makes. We saw in the example of Charlottesville that it's not without a cost to the police. Now, it's not going to be in every case where it's such a human cost to a police department, but it's not without cost to a locality, to a police department. What do we do when certain localities are targeted for whatever, as, as was happened in 1977, where it was decided because it had a large Jewish population that that town should be targeted for a Nazi rally. You know, and how do we draw the line that I think Alito gets at, which might be the beginning of some jurisprudence in this area, or might not, this line between this free speech, this great American value, and harassment or a form of terror. You know, I, I, I see that image of those guys marching through the town of Charlottesville with their torches. Where do we draw those lines? But I think to think that we're done just because we have a First Amendment, we're missing a point, particularly the new social media environment, which can transport. It's almost like a, a form of a teleportation device has been invented. Now, it hasn't been, but in organizing and information, it has been. So you can get people from California, Ohio, Kentucky, other places in one rally in Virginia at the same time and coordinate. You can get large crowds targeting a terrified locality in a better way than would have been possible in the past. Most of the cases that were dealt with in the past were small local rallies by small local agitators and fringe groups. There are issues unresolved. You have issues like the whole Gamergate controversy or the online harassment, the swarms of people you know, harassing others, the doxing that goes on social media. And while the legal system can chest beat on some of these big First Amendment cases and feel really good about it, they have been insufficient in all of those cases. And anyone who's a victim of that knows it. It's impossible to use the legal system to for most actions when there's a swarm of people and multiple continents using social media against you. Yep, the book is not shut on this one. In telling the story of Skokie, I don't have answers necessarily on these these questions, but I think they're questions that do need to be brought up. I want to thank you for listening. This episode is going to be followed shortly by another one. This is obviously done because of the, the recent events. I want to thank you for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. 
please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.